Hello everybody, it's 40k lore time, and we're gonna learn about things and waste all your time. Hey guys, so this is an audio clip Corey and I are inserting beforehand. Um, we're gonna divide this Harlequins um, episodes into two parts. The first part which you'll hear shortly, will be um, on the lore and of all specific units, as well as the general lore of the Eldari. And then the second part, we will devote the whole time to talking about tactics um, and stratagems and the Psychic Awakening stuff. So uh, I guess without further ado, um, here's the episode. Hi, uh, so welcome to Foxtrot Battleline. So follow us on Instagram at Foxtrot Battleline 5198, as well as send us an email with your comments, criticisms, or su- suggestions for future episodes at foxtrotbattleline at gmail.com. With that being said, and sorry, I just jumped right into that, but I am super pumped <laughs> for today's episode. Um, Corey, how about you? <laughs> I am so stoked. From the minute I opened up this, uh, from the minute I opened up this codex, I've been I've been firing on all cylinders. Can't wait to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, so today we're covering Harlequins, um, a very often I would say overlooked race oh, in the forty misunderstood. Universe. That too. Yeah. Um, so I guess. Two, I wanted to mention. So the reason why we're kind of doing a deep dive today into Harlequins is um, so we just started a quote unquote studio army um, and it's going to be Harlequins. So they will be featured in some battle reports coming up um, and they're going to be, I think, one of my main armies in ninth, um, at least either mono harlequins or mixed with some drukari so um cory's painting them uh i almost forgot to mention yeah. that but <laughs> <laughs> we need to um, come up need to come up with like a hashtag or a name for what this great painting endeavor is gonna be like something crusade or something because we're gonna be <laughs> updating the instagram going forward on as they get painted how they come out how they're gonna work and then once they're fully painted, you guys will see it on the tabletop right away. Yeah. yeah, probably, I think one of our first battle reports will probably feature them, I would assume. It's going to have to. Yeah. By the time I finish this army, I'm going to be able to bullseye a uh, checkerboard <laughs> or harlequin pattern from a mile away. Yeah, we were just talking uh, for our <laughs> listeners before this about how Corey's going to get so good at checkerboard, it'll be like, oh, I just finished this harlequin in like, I don't know, five minutes. <laughs> Yeah, just just like a little aside here, how we got to this point. I was flipping through the new uh, the new white dwarf, and I was showing it to my wife, who I'm continually trying to show her new things and be like, "Isn't this cool? Isn't this cool?" And I showed her the new Harlequin rules, and I was like, "Look at these guys! Don't they just look really cool?" And she took one look at it, and she goes, "Yeah, no, that can't be the same. That looks nothing like your guys. These look really cool and interesting." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, okay." And then I started looking more and more into it. And she's like, yeah, I really like that. I really like that. That's cool. And we're we're going back and forth. And then I text Steven. And I'm like, man, I might just buy like a troop of these guys and paint them up. Because I think 
that would be a cool painting skill test to be able to paint these guys. And Steven says to me right away, hey, that sounds awesome. I've always wanted a Harlequin army. I'm ordering like $600 worth of Harlequin. They'll be at your apartment on Monday. You have all the receipts, right? <laughs> I have they came in the boxes. getting all of the box receipts so I can see how much you've spent on everything. Oh, no. <laughs> and every time I say to Steven, it's like, hey, man, I got all these things. Like, how much more is coming? He goes, don't you worry. There's more. So it's been one week of like Harlequin Christmas of all these things coming in. And in my mind, while I'm looking at these things, I'm getting ready to paint these Harlequins. I'm like, this is going to be easy. I can paint a lens really well. So I think I can paint, like I could paint like a space Marine lens really well. So yeah. as long as they sculpt in these diamonds, I could just bullseye them and just knock out this diamond pattern. It's going <laughs> to oh, look <no>. amazing. <laughs> and I open up the first box and I look at the leg where the diamond pattern is supposed to be. And it is the smoothest leg. <laughs> there is no, if you're like you ever thinking shaved. about buying Harlequins, <laughs> Yeah, just shaved, smooth as a baby's bottom. So if you're ever thinking about painting Harlequins, every pattern in it is your own creation. So, Which is kind of cool. It's fantastic. And it, it went from excitement to total fear to excitement again in like five minutes where I was like, shit, 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 shit. Oh, okay. I get to cool. do this though. <laughs> and yeah. uh, that actually – so when Corey sort of volunteered – and I pushed him over the edge with sending him so much <laughs> about <laughs> painting the Harlequins. So one of my biggest fears has been Harlequins. I've always wanted an army, but have never started one because I just don't think I have the skill to paint them or patience. So um, it worked out well, <laughs> I think. Yeah, it's one hand washing the other. We're just, uh, I don't think that's a saying. We're scratching each other's backs here, so I'm going to paint his army. He's going to play the army, but well, and Corey's going to. I hate Eldar too. Yeah, so I, I've never liked Eldar. I've never liked anything about Eldar, and I cracked open the. I, I cracked open this codex to try to get us ready for this episode, and right away I was texting Stephen, being like, "These guys are freaking cool." Yeah, I can't wait to get into it. I I will admit that I would play this army. I've even asked Steven. I said right out the box, I'm like, I think I'm going to have to borrow this for a game or two. <laughs> or f- and he's like, ten. absolutely. <laughs> I don't know, um, man. Yeah. Well, they're hard. And I guess that's a good start to move, start moving into some of this content. So uh, Harlequins, Harlequins, like their Drukari cousins, are a very difficult army to grasp um maybe not you know you see the weapon you're like oh cool that's a good weapon but when you start thinking about gameplay and how they sync up and what stratagems you're going to use and how weak each unit actually is and how high costing each unit actually is um you start getting into some nuances about having to ask yourself well what is this one guy going to do? How's he going to support my overall army? And also, you know, how, what is his board presence like? Um, so in order to get a lot of those sinks, and I read this before um, online, they're not, I wouldn't say if you're, if you love them, go buy them, but you're going to lose a lot if you're a beginner. Um, so I read a lot about, 
you need a little bit more nuance and experience to start sort of messing around with them. Um, that's not saying don't go try them. Um, some people are also just naturally better at this game than others. Um, just like everything in life. So, uh, but I do want to have kind of a preface with they are a much more difficult army to figure out. Um, and they are a, uh, what's that called? Glass. Glass hammer. Yeah, they're a glass hammer if you play them well. Um, which, even with me, um, I've been talking to Corey and another buddy of ours, Olu. He's on the podcast. I can say his name. <laughs> Silky, but, smooth tones, Lou. Oh, yeah. Um, his voice is so Lou. beautiful. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> but, um... I'm going to, you know, need like 10 games where I expect to lose before 20, maybe even, um, where I, you know, just kind of build up, um, getting these units right. And after every game going back, adjusting, rereading my stratagems, adjusting warlord traits, adjusting weapons on certain units. Um, although, I, you know, you go in with a little bit of understanding if you sit with the codex. So I'd recommend with Harlequins buying the codex, reading it and letting it really sink in. Um take like yeah. a month and just, you know, maybe buy some models, do the hobby with them, but if you already have another army especially, just sit with them and l- think about how they work and um maybe play a couple small games to try out units like 500 to 1000 points. But um, especially with the game, and on this episode, we're going to try to relate some of this to 9th edition. Um, we only have, well, I guess we have everything that you'd use for them to play in 9th. Uh, the rules basically leaked. Uh, the rule book's not out, but we have an FAQ on their codex. Um, we have the Psychic Awakening rules in the White Dwarf that was released uh, last month, right? Yeah, it was about last month. Okay. Um, so they clearly wrote the Psychic Awakening rules with Ninth in mind, considering the rulebook dropped like a week later. So so I think, you know, we have a, a lot of information on them. Um, so you can kind of start to put the pieces together um, before people are playing Ninth. Although, to be honest, I just played a quote-unquote Ninth Edition game last weekend so um things are progressing which you won yes which i did win granted we did not play with secondaries because it was both our first time and we wanted to um (laughs) figure out get the get the flow of it yeah and like figure out the blast rule um i will say to our listeners it did run like it's a little bit intuitive from eighth um the board size, however, you <laughs> I know you read online like the dimensions, but you when you put it down, you're like, wow, that is a lot smaller. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine playing like a smaller point point list, <clears throat> smaller point game with the Harlequins on the smaller boards that they tell you to use? I mean, but they're so fast. They charge first turn. <laughs> They've got to be great. At these small board games. Yeah, especially like one unit, two unit of troops. I think you'd do a pretty decent job. Um, but 
All right, yeah. so that's kind they, of... uh, just to say really quick. They, when you're gonna, if you start an army, you start a Harlequin army, and I think Stephen said it, it said this uh, in a great way. But in the codex itself, they kind of point out that every single model and every single character within it has their own role. It's as if they're like a theater troupe, and they have themes that go back to theater and stylistic things and we'll, we'll get into that coming up but the idea is every single character every single model every single unit has its own kind of theater role and the important thing to the harlequins is that they each understand each role of everyone they're going into battle with right. and so they know what that other unit needs and they know what they need to give them and they know what they need from other units and because of that, they fight better than any military unit in the galaxy because they're all always adding to each other and buffing each other and pulling off of each other. And so they have this intrinsic knowledge of each other to the point where they don't even have to talk. And I think that's kind of the mental state you need to get yourself into when you're thinking of playing this army. Yeah. It's and That's why Steven says to sit down with a book for at least a month because you need to know every single unit you're putting on the table, how it's helping and how Every they can it. actually switch their roles, which does happen. Um, so you could have, for example, and we'll get into this unit a little bit later, you could have a death jester playing or performing one role on the battlefield, like as a, to be more concrete, like an anti-troop. You can also play the same character, same unit, same stat line with being a character assassin granted these things are all built from relics warlord traits stuff like that um pivotal roles now so it is a very nuanced army (laughs) and uh cory did you want to add anything on that i think that's good i think the only thing i want to put in was that point where you just really need to uh get into how you want to play it you yeah. need to understand each unit. strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. I think yeah. we covered that though. We can, I, I can move on. All right, cool. Um, so I think we'll start off right with a general, um, meaning the overall lore for the army. And then I think, uh, once we start talking about gameplay mechanics with specific units and you're lucky, there's so few units, we can cover them all. <laughs> Usually, uh, when you go into like a deep dive of an army, you can only talk about key units, but we can actually talk about all of them, minus maybe the Webway Gate. But anyway, so Corey, since you this is kind of uh, your part of the game, why don't you walk yeah. us through some of this? You want to start with the lore? Is that what we're saying? Well, I'll start with the word Sega Rock. <laughs> Sega Rock. I'm glad you said it first. So when I try to say it, I sound a little less silly. We, we, by the way, we both don't know how to pronounce that, like, officially, so. I found, when researching this recently on how to say this, there was a whole Reddit list saying that... <laughs> there's a whole thread the on, name on this? There's a whole thread on how to pronounce the name, and everybody is given a different concrete answer. Like, everyone's like, no, it's definitely this because of this, and every single one is contradicting to itself. And because of that, somebody just commented going with Segarak is a trickster god, and the whole point of the whole reason behind his name being so difficult to say and pronounce 
is a joke onto itself, which is kind of the perfect de- like description of the Harlequins and their god is that it's like, well, it's really hard to pronounce the name, and that's the joke within the joke. So we're going to, for for our intents and purposes, call him Segarok. It's uh, the way it's pronounced, the way it's spelt is open to multiple different pronunciations, but this is going to be the Foxtrot battle line one. And if you hear us jump between different ways of saying it, just understand we're trying our best here. And I'm just so <laughs> a funny anecdote. Um, I've been texting Corey about some of this stuff all week. <laughs> and I also play Drukari, or I'm working on it. And um, <laughs> I, I can't spell Segarok to for the life of me. So at a few points, I've started combining the words Segarok with Kamarok. And for those of you who don't know, that's the Drukari homeworld. And I came up with like some... <laughs> random spelling between Segarok and Segarog. <laughs> he said it's like the wrong way, like eight times in the same conversation. And I'm sitting here like, this is Eldar. This is Steven's world. Don't correct him. Don't I even correct him. sat just... and stared at the word. And I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> C-E-G. <laughs> oh, well. So, Anyways. With all of that tripping, Segarok is the, is a old Eldar god um, of the original pantheon before the fall of the Eldar. So if you don't know much about Eldar, and we haven't talked about them too much in our podcast to start, the Eldar... I just cover it. Cover it all today. Yeah. Uh, so basically, the fall of the Eldar is a big moment in the 40k history. And this is the Eldar where this this grand race and empire of... I'm going to say space elves. Stephen hates it when I say that, but they are basically this older race that's been around for generations and millennia, and they have created this big empire. And with that power and with all of that, they began to not disassociate themselves, but pull themselves away from the teachings of their pantheon of gods. And they started to become more hedonistic and do different things and, and, there's like a lot of things you could say like orgies and weird murder cults and they just started self-indulging to such a place where they just got darker and darker and darker and with all of that self-indulgence they created a new god and that new god is the chaos god slanesh and slanesh when slanesh came into being she who thirsts as they call her came into being and absolutely tore up everything the eldar knew they she single-handedly murdered thousands and thousands of Eldar. She cleared house of the race. Uh, a certain number of Eldar got away. A certain number of Eldar left before this happened. So there are, like, surviving ancient Eldar religions and pieces and sects, but there's, mainly... Uh, let me just jump in yeah. real quick. So there's four main Eldar factions. One's really new. Uh, five, I guess. Um, so you have the Drukari, who are the Dark Elves, Think of them that way. Um, they were the ones who kind of cause Slanesh. <laughs> um, they live in excess. Um, they torture. They do a, they you know, still tons do. of drugs. Yeah. Um, then you have Craftworld Eldar. They are the quote-unquote high or light elves. So Rivendell in space. Um, and then you have the Harlequins, who 
I will hold off on talking about because that's the mm-hmm. point of this. <laughs> and then you have the Exodites who saw this stuff happening and left. Um, they kind of ride dinosaurs, so they're dino elves, I guess. <laughs> um, and the things you... I saw, they're kind of like hippie elves kind of yeah. too, right? Like they live off the land. They stay yeah. away from technology. Yeah, farmer cool. elves, I would say is a better... I mean, I don't think they smoke a lot of weed, but... Maybe <laughs> the Harlequins <laughs> definitely do. <laughs> so, um, and then you have this new faction called the Neonari, which we will try not to talk about. But when we move into gameplay, it's going to be hard not to bring up a Neonari Harlequins list. Uh, but, anyways, continue. So, with that, all of the these are the remaining sects of the Eldar races and they all have gone their ways, but they all stem off from this one giant Eldar genocide. Basically in this same moment that all of these Eldar die in a giant act of power, Slanesh to become like the only God of the Eldar race simultaneously went through and supposedly, cause there's some leeway here, destroyed the entire pantheon of old Eldar gods. Which were very real. They they existed. It wasn't like a mythical religious thing. They they were real. And destroyed, from what we know, all of the Eldar gods with the exception of Segarach, which is the laughing god. Uh, so in the I'm gonna read a quick quote here just to kind of get it out about the fall. And it was just a quick in the face of this wanton madness, the old gods could do nothing. Bloody-handed Cain raged. Val the smith turned his back while Mother Ishik wept oceans of tears. Even Asurion, the creator, looked on powerless. But only Segarak seemed uncaring, for he merely laughed. So that's from the Codex. As all of these gods were being wiped off the face of existence, Segarak, the laughing god, pulled himself into the webway. Steven, you want to take over and explain what the webway is? Yeah, no problem. Um... So the webway is this dimension between the uh, warp and material universe. And it's hard. I don't know. I can't even really visualize it. I don't know about you, Corey, but I have a hard time thinking of what exactly it is. What I read, they kind of explained it as a... There's two explanations that kind of make it feasible for the mind to understand it is one is to look at it like a tapestry where every single different pathway in it is a different thread within the tapestry. So there's just millions of threads within a tapestry that's woven. And the other would be to be like a net across like a muddy pond where it's a net that goes over it. And the pond would be like the warp, which you don't want to go into, but it it just kind of skims the surface with the net having each individual uh, pathway. They also kind of use the word labyrinth to explain yeah. it. Yeah, I was going to mention that word, definitely. Um, it's a labyrinth dimension. That's, you know, how you can think of it. Um, and essentially what... I mean, they live there. The Harlequins live there. Um, but if you didn't live there, you could think of it as a way to jump between, you know, point A and point B without going through the warp. Um and that's, you know, what the Harlequins do. They use the webway to get around the galaxy to pop out randomly at um, <laughs> any point in the universe. And that's a little bit why some of the other races um, 
they gain this mystique because they can just you know they can go to any world with that they want to at at the time and kind of just pop in say hi do a dance <laughs> do yeah. some drugs and pop back out <laughs> so um it's a they, pretty crazy dimension i think it's one of the weirdest things in 40k i would say it's kind of like a special power for i mean it's it's eldar the eldar have a very big part in it but the harlequins themselves kind of live in it like you said they run it they, they, they kind of rule it they regulate it um they allow or try to guard uh, certain aspects of it um Kamarok, the Drukari homeworld, is in the webway as well. Yeah, that's a crazy thing to understand. I saw that in the codex, and I was like, well, the, well, that's weird. That's a whole weird other step. Yeah, I think the big thing with it is that if you imagine that there's three main ways to travel in the 40K universe, there's the normal spatial way of traveling, which is just flying a ship from point A to point B which, if you understand physics, takes a really long amount of time. Then there's there's type B. The other way of doing it is warp travel, which you go into the warp, which is completely unstable. You might come out somewhere you don't know you're going unless you have the right navigator. Uh, also, you're subject to all of the chaos powers happening in the warp unless you have a Geller field, which is a whole different conversation. But it's very dangerous to go through the warp. But it cuts your time in half, and it even just fragments your time of going from point A to point B. So that's like the two main ways. But then the third way is this way that is the web way, which, again, it's like a labyrinth. It's a tapestry. It's 100 different threads and 100 different patterns going through all of space from point A to point B. You go into it trying to get A to B, but you might get to point well, E, F, or G depends unless how well you know what you're doing. You know it. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's the only. That's the other thing is they said that Segarok is literally the only being that fully understands every single pathway, which is why the Harlequins are so good at it because they worship him as their god, and he kind of lives among them. Yeah, um, so he's bestowed this knowledge to them, so they have almost a supernatural understanding of this super complex webway and and labyrinth. So that they're the only ones who know how to get through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the kind of other major uh, fact of lore about the Harlequins is, and this is really, really big, I think, in the whole 40K universe, is um, the Black Library. Um, also, every novel is published under that title, <laughs> um, but it's an actual place in the 40k universe guarded by, and it's said to be where Sagarok dwells. Um, so, well, I, th- I think he dwells wherever the best joke is, you know, <laughs> but, um, did you want to cover that Corey? Yeah. So the black library, like Steven said, is a destination within the webway itself. It is one giant, it's basically a giant, li- a giant library that holds all of the knowledge of all time and space. So if there's any point of knowledge about anything, it exists here. It's being taken care of by a number of librarians and curators, which apparently is like an Eldar thing. You can go on that path to protect the Black Library and not be a Harlequin. It's, 
I didn't get too in depth on this this lore, but you can be like a curator of the Black Library. It's like a, a calling in life. Yeah, but and typically you're a Harlequin first. Yes. But. So the Harlequins themselves exist and live and protect this Black Library. It's also where Segarak, their god, is understood to live and walk among them and share his knowledge with them. So they are the only ones who have like full, exclusive. Uh, they they're fully exclusively allowed to be inside of this because they they are its protector. Uh, there are many people trying to get there. I think Araman from Thousand Sons, like his whole thing is to try to find the Black Library. So he's constantly in competition. He, he does. Right. I think like he got to like the door or something, and they they just like blinked out. Yeah, I had to read that one though. I just I've only read read about it. But they're basically constantly trying to get into, and the Harlequins are always like constantly repelling him and moving away from him. As long uh, and also another thing that we should mention here is the Harlequins in general are the keepers of and reminders of um, knowledge against chaos and the threats of the galaxy. So they're not really um, against the Imperium. Um, in fact. Uh, librarians and primarchs have walked through the Black Library, specifically Gilliman. So, <laughs> um, I believe. So, they will give knowledge to those who are attempting to fight chaos. So, um, it's not like a well, it's a pretty exclusive library, but it they do allow those in who seek who they deem are either part of Segarok's like master plan or uh, to have that knowledge or you know you have to think like oh, I guess Corey get into that because it's like the end days thing oh are you talking about the the final yeah like uh, supposedly Segarok like knows how the universe is going to unfold and how the Eldari will win or how they'll beat Slanesh and so, so you know supposedly he has this like master plan you know yeah um, this one I actually don't get into because the codex I had is kind of a little wishy-washy on it your codex okay. had a little more than mine did well uh, and just FYI, Corey's reading the seventh edition because uh, it was easier to obtain. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'll just read. Um, it's called the final act. So, um, and apparently, Sagarok's ultimate jest would trick Slanesh into expending all her energy energies to not destroy the Eldari but save them. So that's the end game here, but. Um, apparently some, a crystal tome, um, has opened, uh, kind of revealing to the Harlequins some of the actions they need to take, um, in order to sort of make this end game of Slanesh actually ending up saving the Eldari, uh, happen. Um, and they have been involved with the resurrection of Yanid. Um, so... It's, and that's the god of the dead who has basically become a god in the 41st century. So there's all these things kind of 
going on and you never really know if Segarok's end game is like to I mean I'm assuming he wants to save the Eldari but at what cost or how or I mean it's all kind of a mystery and or a joke so (laughs) you really don't know you know you really don't know so the the common understanding with that is that even though it's all a joke and even if you try to fully understand it or grasp it ideally if you want to like if you want to grasp it with your brain it's that because of the way slanesh came into the world and do what she did uh segarach himself is kind of always in competition against slanesh so from the distance from his corner he is launching little attacks to get back what they had before and he he hates slanesh um hates her yeah despises her with i mean He's a god of the Eldar, and at, even if you're the trickster or joker god, I'm sure, you know, he still loves his people. So, um, pretty, you know, big upset there with Selenesh consuming all the people. Um, but yeah, so I just want to highlight, too, before we move on, there are three places, like actual sanctums or rooms, mentioned in the 8th edition codex, and they're really cool. So... One is called uh, the Seething Spiral. Um, I guess that has a bunch of runes and runic wards. The other is called the Dome of Stars, which has actual demons and demon relics and stuff like that in it. And the other is... Oh, just two. So Dome of Stars Extinguished is the name of the Chaos uh, room, which is pretty cool that they give you a little bit of, you know, like... This is a room in the Black Library. Um, so also, uh, there's two things Corey and I um, will now mention um, before we move into some of the gameplay and really dive into these units. So the first is, um, every so because of the fall, every Eldari, and sorry we moved on from the Black Library so quickly, but that's kind of it. Go read about it. It's really cool. Um, but every Eldari has a way to save their soul from Slanesh and every Eldari that survived the fall. So craft worlds and Exodites have these, have these things called like, I forget the exact name, but they're like world spirits. And so when you die, your soul gets sucked up into the world spirit and it's contained within like a psychic gem sort of, uh, crystal matrix i think maybe that's what it's called but it's like the soul stones and all that well that's they put the soul stones into this bigger collective of souls um mm-hmm. and so that way your soul isn't delivered to slanesh when you die and you can actually put be put into like a wraith construct or something so that's the light elves way and then Drukari, um they survive through torture so their souls are allowed to not feed Slanesh as long as they torture people, um, I guess. Uh, I'm sure it's similar to the craft worlds, but it's just through extreme torture and pain that they're allowed to sort of persist and their souls don't leave um, Kamarok. And then the third and most awesome way, in my opinion, is uh, the Harlequins. And they survive because of Kamara, or Segaroth. He saves them. He takes, when the uh, Harlequin dies, Segaroth will take their souls and, um, you know, they sit with him. And 
he basically they say like he slaps like bitch slaps slanesh and then saves the soul you know so um but that leads us into um the harlequins so i know it's taken us a while but yeah uh, <laughs> we got all the way to this point and then realized that we did not describe for you uh awesome listeners exactly what the harlequins are and i think that's a big disservice before we move on because in order to understand the tactics and the way they play you may need to first understand who they are at their base it's as if we, we covered the, the background and how they came to be with the fall and Segarak being their savior. Segarak himself is kind of like if you love Norse mythology, more that yeah. if you love Norse mythology, it's as if Loki were the only surviving god in all of Norse mythology. We watched all of his brothers and sisters die and then escaped and is now waging war, silent war back across against the killer of those gods. That is Segarak kind of in a weird nutshell. Very I simplified. I, yeah, very simplified. Like, it's not a service to that god because there's so much depth to, to everything that's going on with it. But if you needed to grasp it, which is a big thing with everything uh, Harlequins, is that you just need to find that one grasping point to understand it. That's the one to go off of. It's just Loki who watched his entire family murdered and is now hi- hiding in a tunnel underground. Uh, causing guerrilla warfare against that aggressor. And the and tunnel with, he's in, um, you have to take a tab of acid to enter. <laughs> just to enter it, yeah. So with that, he himself is the savior of this group called the Harlequins, who, when all this happened, he said, okay, come with me. I'm going to be your savior now. I will protect you. So all these other people are now worried about their lives and worried about their souls and their internal damnation and being eaten by Slanesh when they die. But the Harlequins don't have to worry about that because they've got Segarak, who's like their protector. It's like, as long as you're my god, I'm going to protect you from this big evil god. Or as long as I'm your god. So being this laughing god, he has created this... I guess before the fall, there was a group of Harlequins. And the Harlequins themselves were a theater troupe. Like a bigger group, but the, the whole tradition is that they were a theater group that told everybody about like the history of the Eldar gods, and that was their whole thing. So they would constantly be putting on different theater shows. So every single member in the troupe had a role. They all wore like masks and and weird things. So it's if you look at like court jesters and all that, that's kind of the the look of these Harlequins. So after the fall came, all of these people who their god was the trickster laughing god, who was the god of theater and all that. All these weird theater people got pulled into the warp and now became this deadly force of Harlequins who learned how to become like this extra special warrior class to protect their own people. And, and they because actually you spent see- a couple thousand years in the webway training um, after the fall before they reemerged to fight chaos. Yeah, the fall was like the early like early 20,000s maybe, and they didn't reemerge till maybe like 33,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, they went into there, they learned all the knowledge, they came back out as this crazy, insane, like, I want to say like Joker-esque, like from Batman, but even that kind of puts the wrong spin on it because they really are kind of like a theater troupe. They're not like a weird Joker. They are like the court jesters, but they are all very into this theater idea of the traveling band of 
of show people. If you go back to like Elizabethan uh, England, instead of the idea of a Joker, you go back to that idea where everybody has a different role, everybody plays their role, everybody knows what character they are, and they know how to get the best out of each other. And that's that is what we get when we think about the Harlequins. They are this theater group. Everybody has their own specific role, and it's all drama and comedy for them. They are the laughing masks that you see when you think of drama. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they give up their former elder life when they join the Harlequins and become fully committed 110% to the role or um, character they take on. And um, another cool fact um, is when they battle, they're actually performing some kind of um, like play (laughs) (laughs) of a violent one. But it's like everything they do is a show. Like if Segarak was the playwright, it's his job to write the plays for his Harlequins to do. Then there's like the troops, there's individual troops underneath a mask, which is a mask is like a big, the mask itself is kind of the theater company. Everyone inside the theater company is part of that company. And then it's broken up into little troops that are going to perform the play. And everybody within those different troops perform a different role as written by Segarach and prescribed to them. And when you join the Eldar, when you go from the Eldar to the Harlequins, you give up everything in your life to become that role. And Segarach says, basically, you are now this role. You are now the Dawn Prince. And nothing else matters except for you being that role. And I, I keep harping back on this, but the, the reason for that is when we get into troop choices, there are certain troops you can only have a certain number of, and there's a certain there's certain troops that do certain things, and it's because every single one is a prescribed theater role. It's like as if like if the entire thing was Hamlet, you can only have one Hamlet, you can't have four Hamlets. And so when they go into combat and they go into battle, there's just one guy, and that is their job, and everything they do is kind of one big orchestral musical theater piece psychedelic i always bring that up but i think it's an important part of some of the harlequin's character is they use a lot of hallucinogenics against their opponents um and that actually corresponds to so they all wear a mask every single one of them and i don't think they ever take it off like that's who they are once they join the harlequin's so um, their masks shift, and while they're performing or battling, um, the enemy will actually see their greatest fears, and um, they change, and they're pretty crazy. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, usually, usually the masks pertain to, from what I understand, each one has a special mask pertaining to the role they are and what yeah. character they are, and then there's different ones who have masks themselves who can shift to reflect the situation or shift to reflect the innermost fears of the people they're fighting. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think they all shift um, and project onto uh, their, their enemy or, or their audience. Um, Sometimes Harlequins and just to note this off the bat, they will pop up and just perform. Um, Sometimes they don't kill anyone, but when they go to battle, <laughs> it's usually under the guise of a reenactment of something that's supposed to. And here's the intent of their whole race. They're reminding the quote unquote good guys of the universe 
about the threats that actually matter. So the Chaos Gods, the Necrons, and the Tyranids are their three, depending on the, you know, mask your part. Again, mask means um, theater troupe. Um, Grand masks are the bigger theater troops. (laughs) Um, And they all have a purpose of um, kind of what threat they will remind other people about. And it's not just Eldari they're trying to remind. They do remind the Imperium. They, I think they've put on performances for the Tau. Um, they've also slaughtered the Tau. Um, so <laughs> any Xenos race that's out there, uh, I mean, any race that's out there that is, you know, leaning towards being an enemy of Tyranids, um, Chaos, and Necrons, they um, will ally with um sometimes occasionally sometimes they'll also betray them um but usually i think harlequins out of every race act with purpose so they won't just pop up out of nowhere for nothing you may not be able to decipher the purpose but i feel like um they usually have some intent like for example they'll pop onto an imperial world and slaughter like something to bring more troops to that area because a necron assault is coming um right they yeah so they have everything that. is a everything is a long form script that they're trying to perform in real time so they can just jump out of the webway completely like annihilate an entire like population and everyone would be like well why did they do that there's no reason but like 10,000 years down the line they might be stopping like a tyranid invasion that happened because of that population and you have no idea and the only person who really knows is Segarach not even play, like the harlequins they play the the long con <laughs> yeah it's very calculated i think the biggest we looked at some other people talking about things and then and i won't say anything but there's a lot of misunderstanding with the harlequins cuz they want it to be like they want everything to be the joker who just burns things mm. down for the fact of this is why I keep coming back and be like, it's not the Joker. It's not the Joker. It looks yeah. like the Joker. They laugh like the Joker, but it's not that because the Joker is this anarchist who comes out and just burns things down just to see this happen, just to just to create anarchy. And that's not the Harlequins. The Harlequins are very much so purposeful in everything they do. And just because you don't see their purpose and because they may not understand the purpose, if you were to ask them what you would never be able to truthfully there is a purpose to every single death and everything they do is this performance that is just happening over long spans of time. And so even though if you find yourself in combat with the Harlequins, you're already performing a part that you don't even know that you're performing. And they, they even have stratagems that like talk to that where it's like, oh, you fall back and you stumble. That's your dance move. You never knew it, but that was your move to always have done. And now the Harlequin's going to murder you and that's his dance move. And it's like everything is pre-prescribed and pre-written and you just don't understand the strings that are being pulled around you. And then it's a sad day to be in combat with them because it's one of those like, this has already been planned. You right. you are already playing into fate's role and fate is their ultimate script. They, they pull those strings. Yeah, it's a uh, Harlequin's function much like the realm they live in pulling different strings and at first glance it looks like a labyrinth but once you understand it and pull yourself back from it you understand that there's like a greater um purpose to 
individual actions or roles. Um, so, yep. yeah. So w- with that, there is in every troop and every every different mask and every big theater company that they have put together, there are different roles. And I can go into the lore on these roles, but the fact of the matter is that also informs how they work as a military unit. So it is the perfect segue to get from lore to tactics is to start going through different units and how they play. So um, with that, um, we're going to dive now into two things. Um, the specific grand masks in the codex. as And we're just covering lore here for now. Um, we'll dive into the mechanics on part two next in a few days or next week. So... Um, we're going to do grand mass and then we're going to do in the individual units. So, um, I guess we'll start off with the big one, um, the mask of the midnight sorrow. So, um, I do want to, for painters out there, touch on the colors, um, for these masks, just because it's, I guess, cool if you're going for a certain look. So the midnight sorrows colors are, um... Dark black with offsets of bright yellow and motley red and blue. Or their motley, but I don't know what a motley is. <laughs> is that the <laughs> checker pattern? <laughs> oh, there's so many checker patterns. Yeah, so that's them. Um, so the next uh, Grand Mask is called The Veiled Path. And so for sake of time, we're going to go through all these. I'm going to explain kind of the way that they're reminding what threat in the galaxy they're reminding everyone of, as well as a little bit about uh, the colors. So the Veiled Pass colors are green, black, magenta, and yellow. And um, they are the untrustworthy. um, So they can turn on you, but... Uh, untrustworthy mask, so they'll turn on you quick. But essentially, they're also kind of aligned with um, chaos. They're more focused on chaos as well, which most of them are. Um, but some do have little niches where um, they're Tyranid focused or Necron focused. Um, and we didn't really talk too much about why. Um, Google War in the Heavens, Warhammer 40K, and you will find out why the Harlequins do not like the Necrons. So the next um, place is, and that's such a <laughs> succinct way to put it, but the next Grand Mask is the Frozen Stars. Um, their colors are black and white, which is actually pretty damn cool as a color scheme. So um, they are also against um the rot of chaos but the frozen stars also do not like the arrogance of the um imperium and the tau so you will see them more often than not kind of um battling against those factions in addition to chaos which aren't necessarily quote-unquote the main threats but segaroth does like to remind man occasionally that he's too arrogant so um the next mask is the and these are all grand masks so you can play as all these um and they have special rules that affect your detachments so um, the next one is the dreaming shadow 
Um, they are they play the role of the dark often. Um, their colors are deep greens, reds, and some light yellows. Or um, I want to think of them as like a little bit of yellow lining under a like main black and green. So or green and red. So mm. they are actually the main faction concerned with the Necrons. So that's kind of who they're out there being like, listen, the Silent King's coming, which he is, but <laughs> um, they are concerned with that deeply. Um, so the next one is the Soaring Spite, which um, just a little FYI is the faction in ninth I have been leaning towards playing the most. Um, we'll see how they play out in the next episode, um, but their colors are black magenta with a little bit of blue and purple so really cool looking actually i like that color scheme a lot but um they are most closely related to the craft world cm han who also ride jet bikes and are fast and that's kind of their their shtick and the way they play on the board is to um they're really vehicle based um so the next one is the Silent Shroud, and their um, colors are yellows and oranges and whites, some whites. So um, they are literally silent. Um, they don't speak ever, um, even when they're performing or battling. Performing slash battling. <laughs> I feel like we need a word for that because that's what we're we're describing when we talk about their performances, quote unquote. So they are called the ghosts of the webway, meaning um, they don't speak and they pop out of nowhere and just kind of seem to do things without a reason. So after that, um, we have the dance without end and their colors are magenta and black with green and a little bit of blue and um they are the troop that's performances actually recount the deeds of segarak himself so that is the grand mask most closely associated with segarak so the final one um there are more but I think these are the only ones you can play with. Uh, so those are the only ones we'll cover. Um, the Twisted Path. And they wear red, orange, and pink over black. And um, they are the mask clo- most closely associated with the use of like hallucinogenics and light shows to um, get their kind of point across um their main threat is chaos and um the first sentence (laughs) when describing them this is actually pretty funny is in the codex says not all sorry not all routes to victory pass through the realms of logic (laughs) (laughs) so um yeah those are um, the Grand Mass you can play with. Let me just double check to make sure I didn't miss yeah. any. Um, next time, we will be talking about um, 
Yeah, I talked about all these. All right, cool. Um, yeah. Next time. They function, they function very much. Sorry to cut you off. When you think about, I want to give you a second to breathe because Steven yeah. just took the banner on that one and ran with all of them. And I appreciate him for that. They work like on the last episode, we kind of talked about the Imperial Guard where every different style of Imperial Guard there is, like the Talern and all of them, and all of them have their own function. So when you play them and you bring them into your army and you decide that's what I want to do, you choose that kind of play style with the abilities they give you. So when you see these, it's not only like that color looks great, but at the same time, we'll talk next next week, next episode about the different abilities they bring to you. And that all is dictated by the different story that each one is telling. They're all telling their own play. They're all going out and showing the world, the different worlds, this story that they all have to tell. They all have their own. It's as if there's a whole bunch of different theater troops. And each one is doing a different Shakespeare play. Like right. one's doing Hamlet, one's doing Henry V. That Macbeth. It's that <laughs> Macbeth, which actually probably would be a really good Harlequin play. Um, yeah. It's that, but it's in warfare. Their art is in warfare, but they're also telling Macbeth at the same yeah. time. If that and makes that, sense. That's kind of for newer newer players. Um, for you know those of you who are a little bit more experienced, you know, in eighth edition, they kind of divided every single codex up this way, where there's a sect of your army that you get special rules for. So um, we will cover all that. But without further ado, um, let's start talking about um, the units, um, only the lore or fun facts about them. Um, we will cover the rest of that next episode um where things start to get really interesting on the tabletop (laughs) so so um, with every different troop with every different you might want to try not to call them troops because we're going to start barreling Uh, towards a confusion here yeah it's a tough word to use (laughs) unit so with (laughs) with every different uh inside the mask within every different like theater company that they have there are certain design roles that they need to fill at all times, which informs the troop choices you get because they need to fill these roles and they're very specific. It's like if you had like the leading man, if you were to replace that with some of these words or like uh, I, I don't know, different positions on a theater play, you need to fill all of those every time. So they have these different positions that we're about to well, go into. Different need characters. To be filled for- they're just characters. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna talk. We're gonna start off talking about uh, the HQs. We're gonna work our way down the list from HQs to transports, and there's not a lot of them, luckily, with the Harlequins, like we said before. But we'll start with the first HQ, which is the Troop Master. Which, when you think about a play, their place in the lore is that they are the quote-unquote choreographers of war. They are both the director and also the lead actor. The Harlequins themselves kind of work as a like communist group where they elevate their best to the top but it's on their will so they'll push up the best among them to be the troop master and to lead them so when segarak writes the play the troop master is the one who is putting everything into uh putting everything into motion making sure everyone's doing their job as the director but also is the most strong of them and is therefore also the lead actor when it comes to it which then moves on to the rest of the actors 
which the next HQ in the list would be the Shadow Seer. Shadow Seer traditionally are a more powerful psyker type. They're all kind of psychers because they're Eldar, but this one is the most clean cut psyker type of unit. And generally, traditionally, when they're doing different plays, the Shadow Seer is the one that represents the role of the fate in in the world. Uh, they are fate. They act as narrators, speaking in monologues, speaking in songs or rhyme. They're the one who like talks to the audience. They basically are skilled in looking into the future and using manipulations of the mind as their weapon. So they kind of are, again, they're like the fourth wall breaker. They can look in and change it as it needs to be changed based on how they see things. They are the narrators. Uh, that's all the HQs. They, they don't have a lot. You then move on to the troops, which is uh, aptly named Troop. That's basically the uh, – so the troop unit, T-R-R-O-P, and I spelled this incorrectly twice. The troop unit itself, their selections is the Harlequin troop, T-R-O-U-P-E, which if you're a theater person, you understand to be the company. So they're the ensemble. They all – each one specifically has their own role. They all go by their own names. There are different things like the Grand Falcon or the Sky Prince. They all have different roles – that they embody fully with everything they are to be those characters. And those roles also translate into battle. So you have a certain weapon that you use as the Sky Prince, and you have a certain weapon as the Falcon that you use, and you are all playing off of each other's strengths and weaknesses within a troop. Again, it's like the ensemble. They're not the star characters of the show, but they're always there in the background. They're the supporting actors. They're the ones that really elevate everyone else up because of, their specific performances the extras <laughs> yeah i mean they're the john c Riley's before uh john c Riley, who's a great actor did a lot of dramatic roles that you would never know he was in until he did fucking stepbrothers <laughs> um so there's those kind of actors who get the awesome supporting actor roles and that is the troop they are the talented people that push everyone else to the forefront because they're setting the stage with everything they do that is all of the T-R-O-O-P troop selections you can make. We then move on to the elites. The first elite choice, which I think, honestly, is the coolest one. And when he showed up on my desk, I was really excited to build him as the Death Jester. Death Jester, Death Jester is just the coolest unit. He's wearing like a skull mask. He traditionally plays the role of death in all of the shows. So if there's any like dark character, like any any Shakespearean role where there's like a death character, that is the death jester. He comes in. He uh, notably has a grizzly. He's Batman. <laughs> He's Batman. <laughs> He's like if you watch if you watch one of the best movies made, and that's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Um, well, it's not that one. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, where they die and go to hell, and death has to follow them around at all times and makes really dark, bad jokes. That's the death jester. Um, <laughs> He has a really it. weird, dark. It. Yeah, you got to watch it. Um, it's perfectly spot on what this character is because they just make really dark, morbid jokes that kind of almost puts the rest of the actors in it kind of uncomfortable all the time because mm. it's kind of like that guy who makes like the really fucked up joke that you're like, I guess that's funny, but we really shouldn't be saying these things. Like uh, um, Nazi jokes or Holocaust jokes almost. 
or like dead baby jokes. Like you just don't like it's it's ironic. It's humorous. But like, I don't really feel comfortable laughing about it at all. In the codex, they even say like on the battlefield, death jesters will, you know, obviously a either laugh or they'll like hum a pleasant tune as they're like shooting down. Yeah, I think I will accidentally take the most time on this guy, but they are the coolest. Uh, everything they do, every attack they make, they're kind of like a sniper unit. Um, he has a long gun that he uses, but everything he does kind of comes off as like a weird sense of morbid, ironic humor. Like the in the codex that I read, they describe him as shooting like shooting a unit out of the sky, but instead of just sniping out the main guy, like instead of it was a it was a set of horses pulling a chariot with like a slaneshi demon in it and they were like instead of shooting the slaneshi demon in the head which he could have easily done he shot the lead horse and the lead horse tumbled and because the lead horse tumbled <laughs> it then catapulted the slaneshi demon into like a meat grinder and it was like one of those like it's funny to him it's ironic to him it's really fucking morbid like and uh, that i read to um like they'll often when they're sniping people out um like they'll do it at like the most hilarious time <laughs> or hilarious yeah. to them. So like a Imperial person will be like giving this big grandiose speech about hope and faith in the emperor. And then as he walks off stage, gets shot in the head, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or you have like the commissar standing on the edge of like a, a cliff. And instead of shooting him in the head, you shoot him in the, in the testicles and then he falls off the cliff. <laughs> Yes. It's like, yeah, it's kind of funny. It's really dark, but that guy's definitely dead. Well, I have a dark sense of humor, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the cool thing, and the last thing I'll say about him, is that they wear a, their armor and their outfit itself has a set of bones across it. It is a full set of bones to the mask they wear as a skull. And those bones are actually the bones of the death gesture that came before them. So when that person dies and so that role has to be filled by another Harlequin, that Harlequin steps up, takes the role, and then wears the dead bones of the person who just died. It's like their thing, which I thought was so cool. And I think uh, their, uh, their elite choices here for the Harlequins um, have some of the most flavor in the whole codex. Um, so, you know, I guess that brings us to the, I think one of the most important units um in the codex the uh solitaire might be like the most important unit in all of like eldar lexicon i feel like yeah it Oddly is at enough. least um representative of that you know of their yeah. great mission so so the solitaires are the solitaires are a really sad character they're these amazing warriors that basically walk around they don't they don't travel in the troops. They're not part of the group. They basically are wanderers. They, they go off on their own. And the reason for that is because they have the single most important position within the theater group. And that is that they play the role of Slanesh in any play they do. And Slanesh is the great villain of everything that is Eldar. It is the one thing. It is their damnation. It is their hell. And so basically the solitaires have sold their soul to be this role. They are already damned. Their their soul is going to Slanesh when they die. And they and, made the sacrifice to be a solitaire. Right. So 
on that too, which I do want to touch on. So Eldar are a hugely psychic race. So it happens when you're a Harlequin who opens up, who becomes a solitaire. You open up your soul to Slanesh, meaning you uh, let Slanesh in to consume, to become a little piece of him. <laughs> so um, that's the whole like, so, you know, psychically, you meet Slanesh and acquire some of the abilities of almost like a demon prince um, because you've you've made a pact with the devil, so to speak, at least in the Eldari mythology. So, yeah, the solitaire themselves, the mask they wear when they're on the field is the face of Slanesh. It looks like a Slaneshi demon. They again, nobody else likes them because they did that. They are the great uh, antithesis of everything that is Eldar, but they're also intrinsically necessary for every play they have to do, or specifically the fall of the Eldar play, which is like their main one. And you can't have it without having Slanesh. So it's this understanding that you can't tell the story without the villain, but somebody has to be the villain. And so these Harlequins make that sacrifice to become that villain. Uh, They are so special that you can only take one of them inside your army when you make the choice and so it's lore dictating your tactics because it's you there can only be one there will never be more than one at a time there could only be one (laughs) yeah it is the grandest sacrifice but at the same time like you're a complete outcast being a solitaire um, we will talk about how they play on the battlefield but in terms of essential units for every harlequin well they're all essential because there's only like five but <laughs> um, in terms of one, your uh, I guess how do you rephrase that? Um, when there's when all units are essential, um, you want them. You want a solitaire in every roster you play. Um, even if you're a Jukari player and you're adding a detachment of Harlequins, you probably want a solitaire or and a Deathchester at least. So yeah. From what I understand from like looking at their stats, they're insanely powerful. For, smash captains, basically. They're basically smash captains. They get in every stratagem we saw on them. And the thing we, we saw are different. Like There are a lot of caveats that say, well, this happens for Harlequins. But if it's a solitaire, it gets plus one to this and plus one mm-hmm. to this. Where and we'll go over um, the ways you can buff them and different uh, ways you can use solitaires on the battlefield. Because um, there are, despite them most easily being a smash captain you can do different things with them especially moving on towards the ninth so again they are like the most important in lore and all these things uh but past that we move on to and i want to point out that that was five different troop choices or five different unit choices we just talked about and that is all of the main ones We, we have moved our way into into uh vehicles now so just to just to emphasize that we are now out of characters (laughs) uh so quickly but the first of the units we want to talk about is the sky weavers and if you know anything about eldar if you've played eldar you've seen it's possibly like one of the most uh clear-cut things you you see it's their jet bikes they they're riding on the jet bikes they yeah okay so the difference between these ones and the Eldar ones, which is a very specific one, is that they can accommodate two Harlequins, where a normal Drukhari jet bike will accommodate one 
rider, so they're like their own special weird thing. They're named Skyweavers after a after one of the sons of the the cosmic serpent, which was another Eldar god. Am I right with that? Um, you know, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, the cosmic serpent's a little weird because it is like a. So if you don't know, way back when, and since we're kind of covering lore here in all its grandiose nuances, um, the old ones or and the Catan um, were only in the material universe. And the Eldar gods were only in, think of it as like the warp. Um, so the cosmic serpent's different because he existed in both. Um, so, you know, Necron gods, material universe only. Um, Eldar gods, warp or psychic realm only. And then the cosmic serpent was both. So, yeah. This is one of those things that harkens back to when you're looking at like the Harlequin like codexes and you're looking at it. It's kind of one of those books that should come with an appendix or come with a separate book to explain each thing because everything or be a supplement to the Eldari. Yeah. Because yeah. literally everything within it has some every character and every troop choice is informed by a different perspective of lore. This is where like, I'm looking at the sky weavers and you're like, well, it's just a jet bike. That's cool. But then when you look at the name itself, it actually harkens back to like a completely different thing. And like three books of lore, you have to read to understand <laughs> what it's named after. You can take it at face value and just say, yeah, that's a sky weaver and just understand that and be fine. But if you understand who the cosmic serpent is, which I'm learning, um, you can then understand these sky weavers. So yeah. basically the idea is that there are three main vehicles underneath the Harlequins, and each one is named after a different son of this grand cosmic serpent who was friendly, I think is the way to put it, with Segarak and helped Very him in some way. Very friendly with Segarak, I would say. Yeah. So through all the different epics of Segarak and all these different stories that they grew up learning and the different stories that the Harlequins were telling, the uh, cosmic serpent is is throughout a lot of them and so to honor either by Segarak's design or by harlequins choosing to honor this great ally of their god they've named all of their vehicles after it uh the first being the skyweaver which is just a jet bike uh ideally skyweaver the son of uh the cosmic serpent is just a bunch of flying serpents like he's this weird creature that spoke in riddles and was super chaotic and could move around and so that is understood by this jet bike that moves around super quick and erratically and can get across the board in a moment so they chose to honor this flying serpent creature this creepy crazy riddled uh chaotic creature by using this jet bike we move on next to the void weaver which is a heavy support it's a heavy loadout. This is the closest thing to like a tank that they have. Very fast, uh, moves high speed, has a rear-facing cannon on it, and that is because it's named after the second son of the Cosmic Serpent. It's very That son was very ill-tempered and brooding, always had a second head watching his back, which they then honored by putting a rear-facing cannon on it. And basically, to Segarak and his epics and his stories, this was like, his accomplice and like century like he wouldn't let him ride him but he would be by his side blowing up anything he needed him to so 
that character was the heavy support for Sigarok, so they made a tank that was the heavy support for them. And this one is, is really cool. It's just a giant gun on top of this awesome jet vehicle. Uh, which the next one coming up is Skyweaver, which is no, it's the last one I did. Um, Star Weavers would be the last one, which is the yeah. transport. It looks just like a Void Weaver without the giant gun on it. It's named for the first son of the Cosmic Serpent. Uh, basically, this is the same thing as the Void Weaver, except faster and moves a lot of of people. I believe, if I understand the story right, from what I read, it's this was. One, uh, this was the version of the Cosmic Serpent, of his, one of his children that let Segrak actually use him as like a, a, a steed kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. And so to honor that, yeah, to honor that, they created that they created a transport unit that transports the Harlequin. So everything they do kind of honors these gods. And with that last one, we basically covered, I think, all of the actual unit choices. Yeah. No. You, you had one more you uh, want to talk about, or no? That's literally all the unit choices. <laughs> it is that, <laughs> it is that complicated and it is that simple all at the same time. Yeah, that's a good way to put it actually. Um and it does get very complicated actually while Corey was talking. I was just sitting here thinking like in my head like oh, well, they do this, but they do that, but <laughs> so it gets nuanced and that nuance um we will introduce you to on our next episode, which is Harlequin's Harlequin's part part two. And um, just so you know, for those of you who made it to the end of this, um, to preface in two, um, we don't want to tell you how to play these armies. Um, when we do some of these in-depth discussions, we kind of want to, you know, maybe you play uh, a character with the build out, you know, one way that we describe it. Um, there's a lot you can do and a lot of it is also, especially for any army in 40k, it's very situ situational to a, the mission you play and b your opponent and c you know, where your guys actually are on the, there's so many variables is what I mean that, you know, um, we just want to give you kind of some of the things we think are the best, some combos you can pull, which there are also a ton of other ones. Like don't, take our final word for an experiment um because that's what i think is part of the most fun about playing this game is that um you're the warlord you are the one who gets to decide what your units do so take that power i know a lot of other um or some not a lot but some other um 40k you know media platforms will kind of tell you how to play almost and um we do not want to do that here um, I think it's important yep. also to learn it on your own. If you're going to get any good at the game, you've got to be able to do this with any any army um, and look at the important stuff and look at the combos. And we're going to highlight that stuff um, as we move forward as a podcast rather than um, what we think you should do or what's really good in the meta right now. So, I think between the lore you read, the way you paint them, and the way you play them. There are a thousand different combinations and ways to play the game. And the most important way to play the game is to find the way you want to play the game. Yeah. And that's that's the best thing about 40K is that there's one right way and it's the way you want to do it. If you don't win that way, then 
that's so going to be, be hard for you. So be it though. It's just, it's, it's what's most fun. Well, that's, you know, also to speak on the same point, if you don't win and you're okay with that, cause you just like to play, then, you know, all more power to you. Um, you don't have to be competitive to play this game. So yeah, you just got to enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. It's and the closest thing to nerdy movie making that I've ever seen outside <laughs> of my profession. Which is movie making. <laughs> so, um, on that note, um, give it a few days, but um, we will release part two within the same week as this episode. Um, and during that episode, we're going to be covering uh, the Psychic Awakening rules, um, kind of thinking about how they play in ninth and going over the codex. And because there's so few units, we can really concentrate. Um, on each specific one although there are a lot of army trends we'll point out general weaknesses general strengths and um you know since this is going to be sort of like a foxtrot battle line army um we're spending so much time here um just to bring everyone i guess up to speed on the harlequins because um they will also play a pivotal role in um our narrative campaign so um, which I kind of made that executive decision um, <laughs> by myself, but <laughs> whatever. So um, stay tuned, and um, I hope you en- enjoyed listening to us. Um, I know we were super excited about this episode, so thank you for listening in. And um, follow us on Instagram, Foxtrot Battle Line 5198 foxtrotbattleline.com should actually be up i think um as long as Corey and i work hard uh within a couple of weeks so it's really cool we're super stoked um for that and um then finally email us with any questions concerns comments episode ideas just email us uh <laughs> we haven't had a we're a new podcast we haven't had a lot of um listener interaction but we really want to so um yeah email us at foxtrotbattleline.com at oh foxtrotbattleline at gmail.com all right and without that we'll let you get back to your day all right thank you